0: James Capella interconnects millions of assured data points across Jane's Foundational Intelligence with the ability to integrate and contextualize multiple sources, delivering the single source of truth. Jane's Capella increases certainty and accelerates decision-making for everyone in your organization. Find out more at james.com forward slash capella. Welcome to the World of Intelligence, a podcast for you to discover the latest analysis of global military and security trends within the open source defense intelligence community. Now onto the episode with your host, Terry Patar.
1: Hello and welcome to this episode of the Jane's Podcast. I'm Terry Patar, I lead the Jane's Intelligence Unit, and I'm joined on this episode by Ellen E. McCarthy, former Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of Intelligence and Research, Ellen is someone who has over 25 years of experience in the U.S. intelligence community, including several roles, but particularly serving as the COO of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, as well as various uh, bits of time spent working in the private sector, I understand, Ellen. And um, thanks for joining me on this episode. It'd be great to talk to you about some of your experience and in particular about some of the things you've been uh, writing about and talking about recently in terms of where the future of intelligence will lie.
0: Terry, thank you so much for this opportunity.
1: Hey, no problem, no. It's, it's our pleasure to have you on the podcast. I mentioned there, in terms of something you'd written recently, which um, was what really sparked the, the idea for this conversation. And that was an article you wrote for the Cypher Brief that was titled, The US Intelligence Community Needs a Wild Bill Moment. And I thought maybe we could just dive straight into talking about that article and maybe you can unpack that a little bit and explain for our audience who aren't familiar perhaps with Wild Bill and who he was and where you're sort of trying to take that conversation in terms of how you see intelligence developing now and in the future.
0: Wild Bill Donovan, for your listeners who may not be familiar who he is, he really is the founder of the United States Intelligence Community in the way we know it. I was actually serving as Assistant Secretary of State at INR. And I was actually reading a book on Wild Bill Donovan, and I actually participate in a society, the OSS Society, that actually supports Wild Bill Donovan, those who were part of his team during World War II and tries to celebrate the history that Wild Bill Donovan actually was the father of. And so as I was doing some research, I learned that the Bureau of Intelligence and Research at uh, State Department Actually, was the only operational component left from the from the OSS. So Wild Bill Donovan met with President Truman back early during World War II, and President Truman invested in this small capability that was separate from the rest of government that was supposed to be engaged in special operations and intelligence. And Wild Bill, just like his name, built that capability. And you know, for many of us, we believe that that was what turned the tide of World War II. Um, it was it was a combination of great research and great operations. But at the end of World War II, not surprisingly, the bureaucracy that existed wasn't a big fan of Wild Bill. So Herbert Hoover at the FBI and the State Department, they were not fans of the OSS. And unfortunately, President Roosevelt passed away. President Truman became the president. The OSS was disestablished. And there was one group that remained, and that was the Bureau of Research and Analysis from the OSS, which moved to state. And so I learned then that it was actually my very own bureau, INR, which actually was the first analytic unit in the intelligence community. And that's not how I understood history. I always believed it was CIA. Not the case. It started at, at, at INR. That's fascinating. And so very much, you know, I believe that if you want new ideas, you've got to read an old book. And so I believe history <laughs> is, the, is an incredible platform for how you should look into the future. And so getting back to this article, as I was sitting here relaying to my co-author, Matt, about the lessons I learned at INR and how our INR was very much steeped in the culture and the history of the OSS. Even to this day, I said we need another wild Bill Donovan moment. I mean, our community was developed to work a different threat, to work with different data, to work with different tools. It's become this huge bureaucracy that is not as innovative as it could be. And, and we try so many different ways to introduce new technologies and new capabilities. But I really think we need President Roosevelt, or in this case, President Biden, to consider, you know, establishing a new OSS-like capability that is parallel but separate, to bring in new. New capabilities, new ways of doing things, new a, a new culture.
1: It would be great to get an understanding from you of, I guess, in terms of your experience, what is it in particular you think that that kind of that kind of small unit, if it was created, would be focused on, and and what is it that they would need to do?
0: So, at INR, the Bureau of Intelligence and Research at State, it is the smallest of the eighteen intelligence elements which I find very fascinating. Back in 1945, there was something like 1,600 researchers that came to State Department. But when I left INR, there was about 300, roughly 200 analysts. And you wonder, how did that trajectory work? How did we go from 1,600 researchers to roughly under 300? But I actually think small is good in this case. And so having this small unit that was embedded with its user, um, that was co-located with the policymaker, our analysts and intel officers at INR tend to stay. And the reason they tend to stay is because they are co-located with their user. So it's very exciting to be sitting there with somebody engaging in dialogue about what you're seeing from the intelligence perspective and how that gets transformed into a policy. Or to have that discussion to be able to share with the policymaker whether or not their policy is actually having the impact that you thought it was having and so you know i spent over 25 years in the ic i had no idea that this is how inr operated and this is what they did they're very much um, a producer within the intelligence community there are two other all source intelligence elements of the 18 i mentioned that's the central intelligence agency and the defense intelligence agency And INR and I really walked away saying I think INR is one of the best and it's because of this co-location it's because their analysts stay on average 17 years in their portfolio and they're very they're prolific writers and researchers Um, one of my favorite statistics are the president's daily brief which is the community's um, vehicle for delivering intelligence to cabinet level officers INR produces more articles that go into the PDB per capita than the other two agencies, which again, I thought being small is good, incredibly prolific, very good, co-located with their user. Another thing about INR which sets them apart is because they were researchers, they were librarians and architects and historians and linguists, they're very comfortable with open source information. They start their day at the open source level. The State Department architecture is open source. You can talk about the security of that architecture at another time, but the reality <laughs> is, is that you have analysts and operators who are very comfortable working in the open source world. Cables are produced via, op- via open source information and methods. And so I really saw that, that INR was in this very unique place relative to the other agencies I've worked at where you tend to sit apart from your consumer. Mm. You tend to focus on one int in the case of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. So very, very stovepiped, INR small, they have to leverage those other ints. They have to work with those other ints and they actually have this relationship with the person that uses their intelligence.
1: That's incredible. And I think that's quite unique uh, among intelligence agencies, you know, at Jane's, we work with a range of governments and uh, different agencies and organizations around the world, primarily, uh, you know, within the Five Eyes community and NATO, etc. But um, I don't think m- in many places, analysts and, and intelligence analysts would sit co-located with the, with the customers that they're, you know, serving. Does that create a much faster feedback loop? Are they actually getting feedback from the the user community who are reading their outputs to enable them to then iterate?
0: Yes, they, they get both positive feedback and negative <laughs> feedback. Um, you know, interestingly enough, going back to Wild Bill Donovan and the OSS, when when Wild Bill was able to convince Truman to save the research and analysis branch, um, everything else was being taken apart. He actually said that that the war was won based on good old intellectual sweat, and um, so he and he was able to convince Truman that it was very worthy to to, to keep these people and move them to state. State Department didn't want them because they were a group of people who said things that the State Department personnel didn't want to hear. And so that very much exists today, um, certainly during my time in. But I'll tell you, I love a good challenge. And I think when you deliver intelligence and it's not being used or incorporated into um, the decision making, that that's that's your opportunity to try and do it differently, to deliver it differently, to, to research harder not to change the intelligence but to think about other modes to get it to the person who needs it
1: what are the challenges there though in terms of what, if you know if you've got these um what sounds like subject matter experts who are really deeply imbued in the subjects they're covering and they're giving those contrarian views based on what they're seeing how do they go about communicating that in a constructive way so that it doesn't just become a case of people ignoring them because like, oh, it's just another INR report they're always telling us we're wrong <laughs> You know, and it could become easy to ignore them because we see that a lot when we use things like we, we, we see organizations using processes like devil's advocacy, etc., where, you know, they don't change around the role enough. And, you know, it does become easy to ignore people. But was that how, how did they deal with that challenge?
0: Well, it's interesting. I mentioned that how it was 1300 people in 1945, 1600, roughly two to 300 today. Um What I learned when I started at INR was everybody was very happy across the community, across state with with INR and its products which were very much produced in the way that I produced intelligence when I started at the Office of Naval Intelligence back in the 1980s. You know, you wrote a a product up and it was delivered in a briefing book, hard copy that was then passed to your user, um, or it would get sent out on a highly classified system for which most of your users or customers didn't have access. So you didn't even know if your product was was being used. It was actually one very brave senior foreign service officer who said, Ellen, you know what? INR doesn't feel like it's integrated as it was in the past. And so actually, as I did a little research, I realized we very much are doing, we're delivering our content the way that we've always delivered it, dating back to the, the Cold War, which meant that it wasn't always incorporated into the policymaking the way it should be. So some of our analysts were incredibly adept at, at identifying ways to get their content to the person who needed it, to the, to the foreign service officer. Actually, most of our analysts were. Um, but because we were so small and because we were doing things the way we were doing, we were not as integrated. You know, I would argue the world is a little more complex now than it was in 1945. Mm-hmm. The State Department is different than it was in 1945. The whole national security structure is different. And so we really hadn't sort of updated our methods or looked at ways to deliver um, content differently, um, you know, looking at potentially um, new, source, new new methods to actually push your, your data out. And we hadn't done that. And that was a weakness that I saw at INR, and certainly it was a weakness I saw, I, I've lived through um, working in this community. You know, Terry, I've had this crazy career. I have worked all source analysis, i worked collections, I've worked People acquisition budget, the management side of intelligence, and I'll tell you, it really was my two years at INR where it all sort of came together. Um, in that, you know, the, the the challenges that this community has right now is is not just a technology problem. It's it's the combination of all sorts of things, to include congressional oversight, how budgets are aligned, how data is shared. It's it's a it's a big problem. And this is where I think this wild bill moment just really comes in. I would, I would love to see um, this administration or another administration actually create this parallel capability, much like President Roosevelt did, that runs parallel to the IC, but, but potentially looks at data differently and looks at acquisition differently and looks at people differently and builds this parallel path.
1: That's really interesting. And I think especially in relation to one of the things you mentioned earlier, which is that from what you saw at INR, there was a, a huge reliance and, and regular use of open source information. And that was really the bulk of what they were doing. And I wanted to touch on that because that's one of the issues that um, you and Matt raised in the article, which was one of those kind of existential threats. I mean, you may, you mentioned kind of three existential threats in the article yeah. around. And one of those was around sort of, um, I guess, in the, in the round, all three really were around not using um open source information effectively. So, you know, how would you see this if there was well, some kind of parallel organization was created, which would be, I guess, more agile in the way it would deal with information, but would it really have that focus on open source exclusively or would you see it doing other things?
0: You know, I can answer this question and your last question perhaps a little better because I'll tell you mm. w- what I saw was because our content was not being as integrated with policy as I think it could be, that was a delivery problem and also could be a people problem. It's hard to go to somebody and tell them what they don't want to hear. I'll tell you, at INR, our, our analysts are particularly good at that because we have a long tradition of being the naysayers, of being <laughs> the folks who come in and potentially okay. take a different view on things. And again, I think it's because we're small. Um, And and we we stay very focused in our area. But the other big issue I noticed from my time at INR was because there is these open source data sources and information sources, Bellingcat, for example, you know, if the policymaker is not getting the intelligence information that is providing them the foundation for whatever policy they're going to, they're going to go someplace else. Or they may just not like what it is the intelligence community has to provide and go someplace where they do like what they're seeing that may be based on bad data and bad tradecraft standards but actually provides them the information they need or want that fills the narrative that they're trying to communicate and implement and so in some ways we have this competitive capability within the ic certainly i saw it at inr so you know if we are developing Um, this perspective on a problem, and there are 5 million other sources that that the policymaker can leverage, you know, now how do you fix that? You know, now we're just one of many sources. And you know, 30 years in the intelligence community, I know that many, many times my bosses have not used the information that I have provided them or my consumer hasn't. But now it's just so much more pervasive than it was back in the 1980s. There's just so much more out there. And Mm -hmm. unless the IC can get its arms around that and really incorporate it into into its workflow, I, I think we're going to be constantly sort of running behind the eight ball.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think that's something that everyone is, has seen, I guess, in terms of the impact of some of those other organizations. And, and you know, we're, we're seeing it across lots of different spheres now. It's not just specific organizations that are doing more investigative open source research, but also where we're seeing others doing more innovative things, even with things like satellite imagery. Now, obviously, commercial satellite imagery, you know, you would have known from your, your time at the NGIA that, it's improved hugely over the last 20 years. And, and you know, that's become a massive area of open source information that people are using um, commercial imagery to do things. You know, we saw just recently um, BuzzFeed won the Pulitzer Prize with their article on looking at the internment camps in China uh, for, the, for the, you know, where, they, where they're keeping the Uyghurs and, um, you know, highlighting a massive issue that needs to be raised on a foreign policy, foreign relations level, and and doing all of that with open source information. And I think you're right that if decision makers are reading this kind of stuff in the news or they're seeing it on websites or online and it's freely available it's going to grab their attention so is it a competition for attention i mean because i guess the danger is there like you, you alluded to that policymakers, decision makers could just look for the things that line up with what they want to achieve or the agenda they want to push through so is there a danger also that in that kind of competitive environment there's a, there's going to be more politicized intelligence being produced
0: you know, I heard so often about the politicization of intelligence. And you know, what I I certainly did not see it in the community I've spent most of my career in, at least in the places that I work and the people I have worked with. But I'm not surprised to see that there's this politicization of intelligence because of this this environment that you describe right now, where you can you can pick the things that Um, actually support the position that you would like to take. And and so I, I think that's what is meant by the politicization of intelligence. So going back to my INR experience, even in the way that we deliver our content, it was very much hard copy, briefing book, delivered to whoever is reading it, you know, they can pull a page or they can pull a paragraph and they can go with that. And you may be missing the rest of the context when you just take Mm -hmm. pieces of that. So when you look, when you're looking at digital platforms or, you know, when you look at other ways to deliver intelligence and we then understand how our information is being used, that's actually one way that you can depoliticize intelligence. If you actually have an understanding as to how it is being used and, and, and for what purpose. We really don't have that right now. So digital platforms that are embedded with basic business analytic capabilities, where you can actually see pieces and parts being used and pulled and touched, and you can match them up with the with the with the narrative that is being delivered. That doesn't exist right now. So um,
1: interesting. So yeah. that's where
0: yeah, it is. It's very much a competitive yeah. environment. My concern is, and this gets back to the business model of the intelligence community, that the things the community needs to do to become more competitive with the private sector. Are just astronomically difficult it gets back to how we how our budget is developed how we bring in new capabilities how we share data across the government i mean these it's they're not very sexy problems but you know you'll hear all the time i'm sure you ha- have analysts said i would love to work with this but i can't get it or i can't buy it or i'm not allowed to look at it and so the things that you need to do to fix those problems it's, it's not just a, a legislative change proposal here or we're going to develop this pilot there. It's big. And again, that's why I think we need a wild bill moment.
1: <laughs> it's it's so interesting that that sort of dilemma you described, and I've definitely seen that Yeah, both in my experience um, previously, but also working with some of the clients we work with now at Jane's. And, you know, one of the roles that my team at the Intelligence Unit has is going into organizations and helping them develop their open source intelligence capabilities. And quite often will be brought in on the basis that, well, they want to improve how they do open source intelligence. And it's approached as a kind of skills problem and improving the skills of the analysts will solve the problem. But then once you actually get in, you realize, you know, OK, yeah, their skills may need a little improvement, but actually they're not that bad. They're pretty good already as analysts, et cetera. What's actually more of an issue is the organizational structure and a lot of those things that you just mentioned.
0: <laughs> it's, it's, it's always the organizational <laughs> yeah. structure and, and, the, and the culture. You know, I think. Yeah. I mentioned in the in our article, Matt and I, that you know that INR, one of its that what made it unique was its co-location with its client. It's use, I prefer using user. so yeah. um it's co-located with the user. And I think that's where it all begins. You know, so many so many other agencies, most other agencies, that's not how they, that's not how they work. That's not how they're, their analysts are not co-located with their user. In fact, the organization discourages them from being co-located for, with its user for, for a whole host of reasons. You know, another man that I, I think was brilliant for his time was Sherman Kent. You know, Sherman Kent was the, again, the father of intelligence analysis. And, you know, his teachings are still very much fundamental to how we train and, and develop and um, run our analytic cadre. I think his days are over. You know, I, I really believe that where it begins um, as you're going to these organizations is about is about your analyst or your intel officer being able to sit down with the person who's developing the policy or making the decision and being a part of that, you know, being a part of that group. And I know there's real concern about politicizing intelligence, but I will tell you that's, I look at my analysts at INR, that was not a problem for them. You know, they very much were experts at their trade. And if they had someone coming to them saying, I want you to change the intelligence to support this policy, they were very good at saying no, because they knew they had a, a leadership cadre that would always have their back.
1: I think ultimately it becomes a self-defeating problem, right? I mean, if they're producing politicized intelligence, it's ultimately going to be rejected by somebody. Somebody's going to look at it and say, "Hang on, this isn't very good." And then the demand lessens. Whereas it, it sounds like what you're describing is that INR actually has built up a culture over many decades of performing really well and delivering really good product, and that creates its own demand.
0: Yes, absolutely. Hmm. You know, that's, so which
1: which avoids the politicization, right?
0: It really, it 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 really does. Yeah. and again, that's where I say that small is good because we're a lot we're very, we're much more agile. Um, we are able to meet the needs of the secretary and his senior leadership team much more easily. We have this larger intelligence community that we can leverage to get the Intel that we don't have. But I think on some level, this large intelligence bureaucracy is actually getting in the way. You know, large bureaucracies get very good at making donuts. You know that's sort of how it is structured to make donuts. <laughs> We, we take on the soviet union you know or, or we take on terrorism but the world is so much more complex now and it's not surprising that this ginormous bureaucracy is having its having a hard time sort of getting its arms around threats that are not traditional and by the way threats that are better served by open source data climate change you know the issues with health and and, and viruses and and sanctions, how we support sanctions, so much of the data that we need to do this work is available in the open source sector. And yet we can't get access to all of it for a host of other reasons that we can talk about another time. But that's <laughs> yeah, the no, challenge. I appreciate it. We have, we have yeah. so much data, but we're not even getting all the data we need.
1: and I think I think sometimes it's viewed almost as a problem of of quantity when in terms of you know getting all of the data when actually the problem is how do you empower the analysts that you've got who have the expertise to know where to look for information you know you mentioned that a lot of the analysts at INR are people who are information specialists and they know what they're looking for how do you empower them to just go out and get what they need to just focus in on the most relevant sources and not have to wade through everything Um, which I guess is one of those advantages of a small organization that that they ought to have
0: so that's, that's exactly it, and and I've heard listening to some of your other podcasts, you know, the challenges of dealing with new analysts. So so at INR we have analysts who come in and they stay for mo- most of their career. Again, for them, self actualization is those are those relationships and how good they get because so much of of analysis is also based on instinct and it's based on understanding your understanding your your target area or your or your target subject and 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 so that's another that's something else that's unique i think at INR
1: yeah and i think as well you mentioned the the mix of different skills and backgrounds and, and different types of people in a, one small organization maybe you could sort of just comment on that a little bit more how important is that really in terms of being able to produce those more rounded assessments which as we are now living in this more complex world and there's so many different challenges and you need those the, perhaps those different perspectives how important does that become
0: well, so again, they are a um, they are a reflection of the Research and Analysis Branch from 1945. It's a mixture of you know people with different backgrounds, different skill sets, in a way that I know exists at the other agencies, but because we're smaller, it just it's, it's it just seems so much more obvious. Um, 20 percent of the workforce is foreign service, which means you have foreign service officers who are rotating in and out of INR over the course of their career. So they bring those diplomatic skills. We have political scientists. Wait, wait, we, have, we, we have people who um, reflect the bureaus upon which they support. And, you know, the diplomatic corps is a very diverse Core um, in terms of sort of the areas that they focus on, and it's it's getting even more diverse within in this administration in terms of the challenges that the d- diploma, diplomats face. So INR is very much a reflection on that. Whether we're talking about emerging technologies or cyber and you know d- counterintelligence threats from Russia, you know, so INR is this small microcosm of of, of experts who reflect um, the user at state at State Department and. Because they're small, there's no need to create mission centers because they're so small, they have to work together. And so as they're facing um, big issues like global power competition or um, misinformation out of Russia, they tend to work together. They tend to work across offices and they bring in all those unique views, which is why I think INR products are different. And the way we present those products are different because we tend to tell a story. So our consumer is the diplomat. Diplomats love to read. They love stories. They love, you know, they they like the written word. And that's where, again, INR is encouraged to write products the way diplomats want to read them.
1: That's really interesting. You mentioned as well that the shaping and framing of the output as a story and a kind of narrative, I guess. It really does help, I think. Get the information across to users and i think it's something that's underrated as a skill and as, as something that organizations working with that type of user actually focus on uh too often it is about the collection and it isn't really enough there isn't really well again i'm showing my own biases here but it's not enough there's not enough focus on the analysis and actually the output but um, you described this type of agency that could be created and you and you know within that wild bill moment this new organization if you were able to sort of structure it and set it up in any way you could, I mean, how would you how would you go about doing that?
0: Well, you know, I mentioned in the in the article that Matt and I wrote, we discussed the State Department as being sort of a, a model for how this might work. You know, it's very interesting though. We wrote this article before we even saw glimpses of what the new national security strategy, um, which the current administration, they they put out a preview of it, but we haven't seen the strategy yet but it talks about diplomacy as being the main lever for national security. It talks about this need to invest more in diplomacy and that you know we've looked for so many years at the Department of Defense and defense operations as being sort of that primary le- lever um, but that that this administration and and I happen to agree with them really should look at diplomacy as being the primary lever. That that's where where it all should begin. If you if you think about it, I mean, we fought a lot of wars over the last seventy five years, but the world we're facing today is not one that can be dealt with by traditional by traditional battles, traditional military operations. It's far more. The need for diplomacy is just far greater than it ever has before. So. I believe that this new organization should model some of the some of the sort of the way the State Department operates. I'm not suggesting that the State Department is perfect by any means, but it really should emulate um, so many of the things that INR, you know, operates in right now. The reason that INR um, I don't think is is better known is because some of the challenges it faces are the things I discussed just very briefly. It's the budget, it's the acquisition, it's how it's overseen. Um, INR is the only intel element that is overseen by two Senate committees, um, both the Foreign Relations Committee and the in Senate Intel Committee, bizarre for a group of 300 people. You know, oversight can be good, but too much oversight is not always that good. Um, mm. And so what what INR struggles with is they have this incredible content, but they don't have the resources to work on the delivery. As, and that was that was my focus while I was there. So... I would, I would model all the good things about INR, but I would not model the bureaucracies that exist, not only with INR, but across the rest of the, rest of the IC. Um, This has to be a group that um, embraces open source. Um, It has to be a group that isn't struggling with some of the business issues that the others have in terms of how it gets resourced and, and how, how it, how it can bring in new technologies. So some the acquisition model should be a little different for this group. Um, how they access data should be different. The whole, how they collect, process, exploit, and disseminate intelligence should be different than it is right now. Again, I think it gets to being co-located with your user, being in the room as policies are being developed.
1: That's so interesting, and it's it's a compelling vision, I think, for any kind of intelligence organization operating in the world that we're in now especially when as has been laid out you mentioned the national security strategy and i know we've only seen the interim one so far this year but as you know they've laid out in there in terms of talking about the complexity of of challenges that we're now dealing with and threats that are out there you need to have that kind of organization which is built around speeding up i guess the response times and the feedback loop and perhaps isn't built you know on on a kind of traditional intelligence model you know, is done slightly differently
0: the platform tends to get in the way for us within the ic so again you look at, at you know you're from jane so only mm. in the united states intel actually only in the, in the world's intelligence community would you operate on a platform upon which most of your users don't have access and, right. and i think this get, again gets back to you know in the days of wild bill donovan our goal was to um was to get data was to was to get secrets was to operate you know in this behind this this steel door. But I think the model has to change. Now it's about developing insights in the data. Our main mission should be developing insights. I certainly do not want to devalue the um, role of classified information, but the way it works right now is is that open source is looked at as being additive to classified information, whereas I think classified information should be additive to the open source. And so again, we let the platform get in the way. We're an analyst, we're writing something, we write it at the top secret level, even though Our user is operating on the ground. We've been talking about this for 40 years. The platform can't get in the way. Um, We have to be co-located with our user. We have to be in the room when they're trying to figure out what to solve. We have to give our analysts the opportunity to become truly experts at what they do and enable them to develop those relationships. And so when I was at INR, we actually developed a new content management system, which we called Tempo, with its focus being at the unclassified and the secret level. So that we could actually start pushing our data out. And it was embedded with some basic business analytics. So we had a sense of who was using it. And the focus really was providing information out to the embassies and to the, into the mission. And, and, and that's where I think we should look start. That's what this new group should do
1: it's music to my ears obviously coming from an organization like Jane's uh, because yeah. that's kind of what we what we do but um it, yeah it's so interesting to hear from your perspective as well about those kind of frustrations you're dealing with and how you know that those need to be solved all those problems need to be solved in a different way and the vision you would have for that and I think that a lot of that is presumably now something that a lot more people are starting to come around to the, your idea I mean this is you know hopefully something that you're not just kind of putting that idea out there and getting ignored. I hope you're getting some traction. And-
0: yeah, I, I, I'm i not alone in this vision at all. I'm merely sharing with you and your listeners <laughs> what my experience was at INR for two years. Again, small intel element, but for those who work within the community, they understand what INR does. And I'll tell you, there is a lot of us who are saying this right now. And so I do believe that we're, we're going to start seeing, I mean, I'm, a, I'm an optimist. I, I think we're going to start seeing the things that need to be done. I think what you know my concern is that this is not small iterative change i really do believe that we need to develop almost this parallel path and so it's not about it's not about stopping what we're doing right now but it's 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 maybe looking at an inr or creating this this other element and it's it's developing capabilities that then can be moved from your traditional sort of intel processes to the new new things so that over time that parallel path converges and this is how we operate
1: are there any areas that you think right now that national security um, policymakers are maybe don't have their eyes on in terms of or, or enough focus on? Because, as we said, the world the world is complex. There's a lot of change going on. It's it's hard enough to keep up with what's going on day to day. But to what extent would such an agency, if it was created, help with the more estimative assessments and the forward looking type of intelligence?
0: Terry, thank you for going there, because that's exactly again, I, I, I say, let's model INR because my INR is not about the current intelligence it really is about it's not even about the long term strategic view it really is sort of that middle space you know we're looking at, you know, months to a couple of years. And I, and I think that's where that investment should start. Although I'm also a true believer in the need to also invest in our strategic capabilities where we do take a, a much longer term look. And it's not just about presenting what could happen in 20 years, but being estimated in terms of what's coming to happen first in the next, yes. in the next 20 years. But for this new organization, it's sort of that it's it's not necessarily current. It really is that months to the next year or two. What what are our policymakers or what are our users going to be facing? What do they need what do they need to deal with to do what they need to do today?
1: That's really interesting. especially when you mentioned that kind of interim period, because I think there is obviously a lot of information available to people if they want to try and understand what's going on day to day um in fact probably too much and the overwhelm is one of the challenges you mentioned in your article with Matt but um the and the longer term strategic picture is is kind of I think neatly approached through some of the reports that come out like the global trends report earlier this year which comes out every four years and is you know really interesting I think in the way that it constructs scenarios that we could see emerging um in that sort of more distant future but you're right in terms of that middle period that's I guess where especially for the users you talked about when they're policymakers, that's really the period that they can affect.
0: Right. And so, again, it gets to the challenge we have right now. We just, you know, there's so much data. There is so much bad data. There are so many bad insights coming. Who do we trust anymore? I mean, I, I, we really didn't talk about trust, but trust is something mm-hmm. that is, is is also that I think you're going to enhance when you actually co-locate your intel um, expert with the person who has to develop the policy or, or make or make the decision and, and build that trust. And that's, again, it's, it's been very challenging over the last few years because there is the concern of the politicization or there is, you know, you do have those analysts, they're saying things that our user just doesn't want to hear. And, and so the user will just go someplace else. Um, we, we really do need to focus on how can we rebuild that trust. And that means by providing um, information that is highly valued, highly leveraged, and asked for over and over again. It's not just answering a key intelligence question, it's answering that consumer's key intelligence question.
1: That's a great way I think to finish on as a point to really round out everything that you just talked about, Ellen, because I think that's a great way of describing what intelligence, intelligence should be about. Yeah, this has been a really fascinating discussion. I've really enjoyed it. And um, your vision of an intelligence agency that is agile, small, and can really respond to users' questions and interests in a way that utilizes all of the open source information that's out there effectively, I mean, I'm fully on board. and. I- I think a lot of people listening probably would be as well. And um I think inevitably this is probably where we'll end up going within intelligence communities around the world. So thanks so much for sharing your insights and your ideas and and to to see some of these things being incorporated and built.
0: I hope so. I I actually believe so Terry and again thank you so much for this um this opportunity. It really was this was fun.
1: Yeah, this was great. Thank you Alan. Hopefully we'll speak again soon.
0: Absolutely. Thanks for joining us this week on The World of Intelligence. Make sure to visit our website, janes.com slash podcast, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, so you'll never miss an episode.